At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the hour, our Constitution is not good. It urgently needs to be reimagined if we want justice and equality for all. That's what Elie Mistal says in his new book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. We'll speak with him later in the hour. But first, Katrina Vandenhuvel on what she calls Putin's indefensible war. That's coming up in a minute. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the biggest assault on a European state since World War II. For comment and analysis, we turn to Katrina Vandenhuvel. Of course, she's publisher and editorial director of The Nation, and she writes a weekly column for The Washington Post. She studied and written about Russia for a couple of decades now. We see her often on ABC, MSNBC, CNN, PBS, and Democracy Now. Katrina, welcome back. Thank you, John. Very good to be with you. Well, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. It's six days after the invasion. At this hour, the Russian attack on Kiev seems imminent, but we're not going to comment on the battlefield events of the last few hours or days. Our topic is the bigger picture, what's going on and where it's going. And I'm especially interested in the response inside Russia. In in 2014, when Putin invaded and then annexed Crimea, this was a very popular thing uh, in Russia. How does the reaction there this past week compare? It's a very good question, John. The Crimean annexation was popular, cannot be denied, in Russia. Putin got a boost. The polls, and there are some independent polls, showed support from the Russian people. But this is very different. We've been running a chronicle of resistance inside, from inside Russia. It's not popular because, like so many countries these days, John, Russia's consumed with COVID. The economic landscape is not good. And people are, you know, don't have on their minds this kind of patriotic invasion. But you have not only leading independent newspapers protesting, issuing statements, you've had 100 elected officials from around the country. You've had major celebrities who are, inve- who are invested in the system, but protesting. People are run- doing a run on the banks. So some Russians have seen four economic implosions in their life. And I, I, I think the demonization of Russia as a people is disturbing Russians very much. I will say in the last few days, and I was talking to a Russian journalist today, my friend Nadia Chikina, the Duma, the parliament, 
is trying to pass legislation to make it illegal and uh, fineable up to 15 million rubles to use the word war oh. in reporting. Special operations, uh, quotes, is the word. In addition, there are attempts to shut down media institutions. The Human Rights Group Memorial was liquidated the other day. As we've seen, John, Russians standing in support, but in times of increasing Cold War, the space for independence is narrowed. Just a few hours ago, the editor of Novaya Gazeta, Dmitry Muratov, who won the Nobel Peace Prize at the end of December, uh, issued an open appeal with the 2017 winner, Beatrice Finn of ICANN, the abolition group, they issued a statement together calling on um, for the demilitarization and the, de- nuclear, you know, the abolition of nuclear weapons. So that space is there. But last thing I'll say is many Russians are standing with Ukrainians. They're inter- there's intermarriage, there's their relationships, and there's concern in Russia about the refugees, which is a terrible human cost, John. I think we're seeing 500,000. There's very grave concern about the civilian casualties. And as in Afghanistan, when the body bags come back from Ukraine to Russia, there could be increasing opposition. Well, Putin announced on Sunday that nuclear weapons there were being, quote, transferred to, quote, a special mode of combat duty, close quote. That sounds scary. What does it mean? Well, what it means, John, is when you have nuclear weapons involved in any discussion, the risks of uh, blunder, miscommunication, miscalculation are enormous. Each country has approximately 1,500 strategic weapons. And there, you know, there's been miscalculation in these last years underreported. Nuclear submarines, bomber planes off of the Russian border, U.S.-Russian planes nearly averting a collision. So I think anything that can be done to diffuse this tension, uh, it's not fully clear what uh, Putin meant, but it was a threat. He used an arcane term, but um, there is a real danger. And in that context, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, when he went to the Munich Security Conference a couple of weeks ago before all of this broke, did take talk about suspending the Budapest Memorandum of 1994, which moved nukes out of Ukraine. It was a kind of international deal. And he said, we may, you know, abolish, we may renege on that agreement and bring in nukes. So there's, there, you know, it's so dangerous. It is, and I think people don't fully understand there's been such silence on nukes, not with us and, uh, you know, but after the end of the Soviet Union, after the end, the first Cold War, the concern about nukes, you don't have a million people in Central Park as you did on June 2nd. One thing that this should lead to is a reconstitution of four nuclear weapons treaties, which have been torn apart, shredded in the last, ABM in 2002, the INF, which led a million people to Central Park, the conventional forces and the open skies. All the scaffolding of arms control has been ripped and shredded. And I think that's important to look at. One big result of the sanctions is that Russia is being cut off from Europe, which pushes Russia closer to China. What do you see as the longer-term effects of that for Russia and for the world? Very good question. I will say the news today appears to be that Ukraine has applied to the European Union, which, you know, is that precipitated this crisis in 2013-14. 
to join the European Union. Russia had on offer the European Association. There could have been a tripartite agreement with Ukraine and Bridge. There's no question that Russia will turn east. In these last years, John, what's happened inside Russia is the undercutting, indeed, sabotage of Western-leaning elites. Those who wanted a better relationship with the West have had the rugs pulled out from under them. China has bought masses of wheat in the last week. Uh, It did abstain at the Security Council at the United Nations, which is interesting. I think there will be a very transactional relationship. They're not going to be dear friends. And, you know, NATO seems intent on making that happen. So, yeah, let's talk a little more about NATO. We've often talked on on this show and in the Nation magazine about how NATO encirclement of Russia starting in the 80s was a provocative move that was totally unjustified and unnecessary. NATO is not going to invade Russia. Russia is not going to invade Poland or Lithuania. So we don't need U.S. and NATO troops uh, there. But isn't the effect of Putin's invasion of Ukraine to strengthen NATO, to make NATO more powerful, more important, and particularly this German move to greatly expand its military, really for the first time since the 1950s, adding more than $100 billion to their military budget. This has got to seem ominous to ordinary Russians, especially the older ones who who have some historical sense. 27 million perished in World War II, Germany on the borders. It's going to empower NATO, John, but it's going to empower the ascendant forces of militarism and, and the hawks, so to speak, across the board. It's a tragedy because In 1997, the nation did a special issue, the case against NATO expansion. That's not important. What's important is there is a real view that Gorbachev in 1990 was betrayed by George H.W., James Baker, the United States. He was told with German reunification, NATO would not move one inch east. And there was a real debate at that time. It has done what people feared it would, which is certainly since 2008, when NATO moved to the borders of Russia. And Ukraine and Georgia became active invitees. Uh, it, it has it's a military alliance, John. It was formed to counter the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact in 1949. It's not a coffee clash. <laughs> so I fear it, it does empower uh, the forces of kind of a bipartisan militarism around the world. And China and Russia are in our national security review, John, actually written document issued by the administration, that counterinsurgency is no longer the real threat. It's Russia and China. What should the United States do now? What should our goal be? Our goal should be first a ceasefire for human, the cost of the, you know, the human tragedy. And, you know, it's no question that Russia breached international law, broke international law, and is uh, doing something, by the way, John, that people who've studied Russia for many more years than I have are really shocked by. I mean, and so that's different. Uh, a ceasefire, beginning of nuclear negotiations. At the moment, it's uh, reported that nuclear negotiations, strategic communications are suspended. I, I think, you know, some dialogue, even with con- condemnation, but some dialogue is needed. And then what's needed, John, I think, is to think anew about a security architecture, which, by the way, Gorbachev spoke of many years ago, Macron at his best. And I've never been a big fan of Macron, except for his marital situation. I didn't say that. (laughs) 
Um, but he was talking about a new security architecture. It's going to take time. We are now frozen, almost like one of these frozen conflicts, the world order. But there has to be new thinking because think of the challenges of the 21st century. We entered thinking COVID, pandemics, climate crisis, global economic instability. I mean, these are issues that are, we thought, challenges of our time. And we're back in a way to an old order, which in some ways Russia, Putin has inflicted on the world, but we would be wise not to accede to that and find a, a different way forward. But I, I, I also hope I have to say that we've just exited Afghanistan. That war, according to the Cost of War Project, was 5.6 trillion, and the quote, international community can't find 5 billion for that humanitarian catastrophe. May we not lose sight of uh, Ukraine and the refugees when the conflicts, burning conflicts, hopefully end. So right now, as we speak, it's been six days since the war started. I saw that the Battle of Mosul in Iraq in 2016 is the most recent major urban battle. And of course, today the column of Russian armor is on the outskirts of Kyiv. In Mosul, the United States was attacking a city held by ISIS, and that battle lasted nine months. I don't think this war is going to be over quickly. I don't think this war is going to be over quickly, but it is important to remember Iraq and that battle. And important because while we condemn Russian violation of international law, witness, witness Iraq, but also witness, and there's been some coverage about it, including at thenation.com, we need to look at all battles, John, and I think there's a bit of a sense that there, Yemen and other wars are going on and that we're focused, as we should right now, so heavily on Ukraine. But let's not forget how dangerous and what the debacle of Iraq was for the world. Katrina Vanden Heuvel, you can read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Katrina. This is great. Thank you. Now it's time to talk about the Constitution. Our Constitution is not good. It urgently needs to be reimagined if we want justice and equality for all. That's what Elie Mistal says in his new book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. He's the nation's justice correspondent. He's a fellow at the Type Media Center and a frequent guest on MSNBC and CNN. He's a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, and he's also great on Twitter. Ellie Mistal, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me back. Well, let's talk today about the Fifth Amendment. As everybody knows, the Fifth Amendment says the government can't make you incriminate yourself. But there's a second part of the Fifth Amendment that's not so well known. It says the government can't take away your property unless, unless what? Unless they give you just compensation, right? And that that is that is the that is the that's the top of the pyramid question. Like that's where the fight is. The government has a clear, unquestionable right to take your property. It's called the right of eminent domain. Every sovereign nation has it. It probably goes back to, you know, I made, I think I make the joke in the book. It probably goes back to like, you know, the village caveman chief, like <laughs> taking the cave from this other guy because they needed the cave to store the food. Like you can go back 
probably to the beginning of human civilization to understand some version of the of the government's theory for eminent domain. So the, so my question is, what does this have to do with black people? <laughs> well, it does because well, we'll put it like this, John. That the government can take property is unquestionable. Who are the government going to take the property from? That's where we have some fun, right? And it turns out that more often than not, the government is going to take property from people who are poor, from people who are politically unconnected, from people who are powerless. That's the property they're going to go get because in part of this just compensation rule, you can pay less for property from people who are poor, unconnected, not powerful, don't have a lot to begin with. You can get that property on the cheap for in a lot of situations. Also because those people cannot organize to fight and defend themselves and defend their kind of property rights against you, against you, the government in court as effectively as rich folks, right? And so what we've seen throughout history is the government, the American government, constantly kind of going after the property of poor folks, minorities, and in fact, not justly compensating them um, for, for their land, but cheaply compensating them, shall we say, for their land. Well, the fights over eminent domain recently have been fought by libertarian forces on the right. For them, of course, government is the problem and private property is the solution. And liberals usually support the government in these fights because the government is supposed to be acting on behalf of the public. But who is this public? Yeah, so this is where I end up agreeing with Republicans a little bit, which oh, is no. super uncomfortable for me because you said it exactly right. Yes, the general liberal position is that eminent domain is a good power for the government to have because when the government takes the property, it's going to do useful public things with the property, right? It's going to take the property so it can build a hospital or a library or a public space. It's going to take the economic uh, vitality of the property and preserve it as a historical site, for instance. Maybe it's going to take some, maybe you've got a lot of property, it's going to take a little bit of your land to put up windmills or solar panels. All of these useful things is what the government is what we think of as liberals of the government doing when it takes your property. In practice, in practice, what happens more often than not is that the government takes your property and then gives it to private investors on the cheap under some nebulous argument of economic development or redevelopment. So this power of eminent domain that should be used to build hospitals and wind farms is in fact used to build like baseball stadiums and basketball arenas, right? It's the government taking the property in, you know, let's say uh, in, a, in, a, in an urban environment, giving it to a rich white sports owner on the cheap so they can build a billion dollar palace for their toy sports team and not share the money, by the way, back with, back with the government, back with the state, back with the people whose property got took. And that, that's just one example. There, there are lots of, you know, the stadium example is the most obvious one, but there are lots of like allegedly public purpose things that the government will take property for that actually end up in the pockets of private investors. This all kind of crescendoed with the major Supreme Court case called Kilo versus City of New London. That's where uh, the, city, the state of Connecticut basically took 
an entire development zone and gave it to some economic developers for for re- revitalization or whatever. It was just a cash grab for these private investors and and the people whose property was ta- was taken. They went to court, including one Suzette Kilo who just had a house that she didn't want to give up in New London, Connecticut, and they lost five to four with Stephen Breyer writing the majority opinion, defending the government's use of eminent domain and all that kind of stuff, and Clarence Thomas writing the dissent. And this is like the one, you could go through the annals of American history and not find many places where I agree with Clarence Thomas over Stephen Breyer. But this is this is the one. This is <laughs> okay. like, I think Clarence Thomas had the better of that argument because what Thomas said was that public use, cannot be whatever the government says it is that day. It's got to mean something more tangible than whatever the government thinks it is, because too often the government will say it's public use when what they really mean is they're going to get some money from private investors. And I agree with Thomas, kind of, ew. I know, it's hard. I can see the pain on your face. So your piece for the nation opens with a fascinating example. It's it's not from the 1950s, it's from the 1850s. And the public purpose was a great one. The creation of the greatest of all American urban parks, Central Park in New York City. We are so happy that we have a Central Park in New York City. What does this have to do with black people? There was an entire village, an entire community of free land-owning, voting Black people who lived in what is now Central Park. It was called Seneca Village. Hundreds of Black families lived there because back in the, this, you know, back in the long ago, in the before times, in the long, long ago, the white people who initially, who, who owned, I say that very loosely because we know that all of this land was taken from somebody else, but the white people who owned kind of at that point, what was upper Manhattan, because remember most of Manhattan in the 1850s was located basically below 14th Street, um, really below Canal Street. So they owned this Manhattan estate that was basically the country, which was, it was literally farmland. And the, this white family decided that they would sell the farmland to undesirables, which included black people and quite a few Irish people. And so an entire community sprung up basically on what is now the west side of Central Park, kind of above, uh, you know, above the 70s, um, um, where like if Broadway went straight through the park, kind of west of where Broadway would be above the 70s, there was this whole village of Black people who owned property. Remember, in the 1850s, there was no, there was no 15th Amendment. So there was no guarantee of suffrage for Black people. But New York State had a rule that if you were black and you owned at least, I think it was $200 worth of property, you could vote. Seneca Village was one of the only places in New York where you, where you could be a black person and own property because that was the only, one of the only places that white people would sell you property. So Seneca Village had a large percentage of the entire black voting power in New York City at the time. And they took it from them. They just, they just took the land from them to make Central Park. So this is an example from the 1850s, but you say all of the tricks that would be deployed against black communities in the 20th century were used against the people of Seneca Village in the 1850s. Tell us about these tricks. 
Yeah. So what the first thing they do is they say that they, they basically say that the property is condemned, that it's that it's swampland or, 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 or whatever, that it's um, that's not economically productive property and it's dangerous property. They use this to kind of drive down the price that the government will eventually have to pay under the Fifth Amendment's just compensation um, laws. That also kind of creates public sentiment that this property is not valuable to the property owners that it's much more valuable for whatever the public use they are, they are selling that week. I brought up in the book that the Central Park plan was not the only plan for a park in Manhattan. There was another plan where they would have taken Jones Wood. Jones Wood is a, is a place on the kind of Upper East Side, kind of in the 60s on the East Side on the water. It wasn't going to be as big as Central Park, but it was going to be this kind of big green space. Only a few families lived there as opposed to the hundreds of families that lived in Seneca Village, but they were rich white family. They were the Joneses. They were wealthy white people, which means like everybody else, they lived below 14th Street. But you know, Joneswood was their country estate. The government went to take their property. The, the, the Joneses sued New York State and they won. They won a lawsuit that prevented New York State from taking their property so then New York State went and took, sorry, New York City then went and took um, the property of Black people who also sued, but oh, the Black people lost. And now we have Central Park. Do you have any suggestions about what the state could do now to pay the Black owners of Seneca Village what their land was actually worth? One of the nice things about owning property is that we have, we have records of that, right? We know, we know who they were. We know their names. We can go find their descendants. And, you know, if you want to talk about just compensation, they were paid, uh, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, and I wrote it down so I wouldn't have to remember them on the plot, but so I'm not going to quote the numbers to you, right? But, you know, they, they, they got a couple hundred dollars profit from, you know, when they bought the property to what the uh, 1857 authorities paid them um, for the property when they took it. But that property, you know, and you think about the 70s on Central Park West, that's pretty expensive land just at the moment. <laughs> And I bet that if we went and we found all the descendants and gave them what their property is really worth, that that would go a long way to ameliorating the historical hurt and the historical uh, uh, tragedy of the government destroying their town. I don't I don't think we're going to do that. But like that would be oh, I believe the word would be that would be a good way to repay perhaps a reparation. Um, of, <laughs> of the harm that was caused. Excellent. So eminent domain, you say, is one example of how our Constitution is what you gently uh, term an imperfect work that needs to be reimagined. What's your larger argument here about achieving justice and equality for all with the Constitution we have? Right. So look, if we're going to stick with this Constitution, which there's going to be a whole ar another argument about maybe we shouldn't. But if we're going to stick with this constitution, then we need to interpret it in a way that for that that puts at the forefront the issues of justice, fairness, and equality. The constitution was written by slavers and colonists and people willing to make deals with slavers and colon and, and, and colonists. It's not a great document. I mean, it's just it's just straight up, it's not very it literally has not been all that successful if you consider the fact that we had to get into a fighting 
hot war over it, yes, less than 100 years after it was ratified. Like, there, there are other ways to think about, you know, perfect documents, and our Constitution would not meet that standard, right? So if we're going to stick with it, at the very least, we must take the amendments that allegedly fixed it, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendments, and I would add the 19th Amendment, 13th Amendment outlawed slavery, the 14th Amendment call for equal protection, the 15th Amendment um, gave voting rights, universal suffrage to men, and the 19th Amendment eventually gave universal suffrage to women. Those four amendments together become the most important parts of the Constitution if we're going to live in a pluralistic society. And so my fix for it is that everything that we do has to be strained through a lens and pass under under the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 19th Amendments. And if it doesn't, then it cannot be legitimate. And I would kind of start there as the baseline. I, you could call, I would call myself a 14th Amendment ideologist, right? Like, <laughs> that, that, that's a thing. Why can't that be a thing? I would make the, the 14th Amendment is, is the thing that makes all of the other amendments legitimate. Equal protection of the laws. It's a must. You can't have a free society without equal protection of laws. You can't have a free society without universal suffrage. And if you're doing things in your society, Republicans in Georgia, that, that, that take away from universal suffrage or equal protection, then that society is not legitimate. And that, shouldn't be a, that really shouldn't be a controversial position. Kelly Mistal, he wrote about the use and abuse of eminent domain for The Nation magazine. You can read that online at thenation.com. His new book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, is out now. Kirkus Reviews called it a reading of the Constitution that all social justice advocates should study. And Matt Levine of Bloomberg Opinion called it brisk and brutal full of both laugh-out-loud lines and righteous fury. I agree. Thank you, Ellie. This was great. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. And subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.